Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Melina Haddad and I will be speaking with Dr. Dennis Ferris, CEO of Dragonfly Energy, and Jonas Grossman, CEO and President of Chardon Next Tech Acquisition 2 Corp. The two announced a $501 million combination agreement in May. Dragonfly has been attacking a less-talked-about corner of the energy storage market by providing lithium-ion solutions for boats, RVs, and off-grid homes. Although this has been profitable work for several years running, Dragonfly's operations in this niche have always been designed to set the stage for a much bigger technological and organizational transition into solid-state systems. We talk about the areas of the market where outdated lead-acid batteries still dominate, while Jonas gives us the SPAC side view on what teams should be looking for in the current market conditions and how Dragonfly stood out. Take a listen. So just to start, Dennis, you know, we've obviously seen a number of SPAC deals in the battery technology and electric vehicle space, but Dragonfly is really unique and just in terms of the market segments you're currently embedded in with off-grid homes, boats, and RVs. So what made you start there and what are some of the unique dynamics of that slice of the market? Uh, Well, basically, we started there because we were looking for markets that tended to be dominated by lead-acid batteries in terms of deep cycle storage, because we were basically making lithium-ion battery deep cycle uh, storage systems. And one thing we knew pretty early on was folks that had RVs and boats were very dissatisfied with their storage systems. Lead-acid batteries tend to be heavy and unreliable and just difficult to maintain. And so we hit those markets pretty hard with the expectation that we would be able to drive a uh, profitable business to fund the research and development, which basically entails the um, manufacturing of solid state cells for deep cycle storage applications. We had great success in those markets because we had a pretty good understanding of the products of what the customers wanted and actually a pretty good Rolodex in those industries as well. Great. And and for Jonas... You've looked at a, a ton of deals and a, and a ton of different sectors over the years with Chardon. And so what stood out to you about Dragonfly as you set out to find a disruptive target with Chardon Next Tech 2? I mean, so I think it, from our perspective, we launched in August of last year. The markets were, were being challenged. We're continuing lower. So we were um, kind of mindful of what made for a, a good capital markets deal. And, and we thought that a company had to have disruptive technology and a great management team, which we have here, but really needed to be revenue generating and profitable or EBITDA positive. And we saw that as sort of some of the, the core elements to, to the transaction. So when we look, we use that lens. I would say we were, we were quite fortunate to, you know, to, to have a relationship into, uh, into Dragonfly and, and were able to, over the course of the latter part of last year and into this year, kind of put together the, the, the transaction and into, a, into a falling market. So if you look through that lens, it was really exciting company, but also needed to have the filter of profitable revenue generating. And we've mentioned the vehicle categories that you're in right now. So what kind of competition do you have in those markets at the moment? And what are the new categories that you're looking to expand into next? Well, the markets are still primarily dominated by lead acid batteries. Even the market we have the greatest traction in is RVs. And we believe as a, as a, as a whole, the market is maybe 10% infiltrated by lithium ion. It's still dominated by lead acid batteries. Um, so there's there's a lot of meat on the bone there. In terms of other markets, there are many that are dominated by lead acid batteries as the deep cycle storage solution. Beyond boats and, and off-grid storage systems, there are things like data centers and 
emergency backup systems and emergency vehicles and work trucks, um, the telecom. So there, there really is uh, a lot of opportunity. And that's one of the big reasons that we wanted to go through this transaction and raise capital, not just to, to really accelerate the deployment of our new solid state technology, but also to allow us to gain more traction, to devote some resources to, to getting into some of these other adjacent markets. Right now, we are in uh, a few markets that are dominated by lead acid batteries. And ultimately, we're trying to revolutionize the grid. But there's a lot between here and there. So there's a lot of these adjacent markets that are still dominated by lead acid batteries. As I mentioned, work trucks and material handling equipment and telecom and data centers. And if you take these, these markets dominated by lead acid batteries that can be ripe for replacement with a lithium ion battery alternative. We're talking about an $85 billion TAM in 2025. So the opportunity is enormous, even before we get to the point where we are basically changing how we store electricity on the grid. And as you move into those new markets, how does your battery technology compare with the lithium ion offerings of other players in those segments? Well, that's a good question. And as I mentioned, we still consider uh, our primary competition to be lead acid batteries. So there, there's room for our other lithium players in those markets. You know, at the same time, what we have to offer is we've spent a great deal of time um, developing our in-house engineering capabilities. So we design the batteries in-house. We actually produce the batteries in-house from the cells that we buy. So that gives us a lot of quality control. So we, we're very well known in the industry for our quality, for our engineering, for our technical support. Um, we're not just importing packs, you know, slapping a label on them and, and putting them out into the market. And that really does set us apart. Yeah, certainly. That's something that struck me in your materials is just the way in which, you know, as you mentioned, you're transitioning technologies effectively, but you have a slide in your deck that kind of places you at the center of a broad range of listed peers, you know, many of them DSPACs among solid state and conventional battery makers, energy storage and vertically integrated sustainable energy providers. So can you talk a bit about how you touch upon all of those different spaces? Sure. I mean, the, the fact that we uh, developed a profitable business to drive the, the, uh, the establishment of a new technology is really why we're at this energy nexus. Um, and so we already provide full systems. And that's why we, we consider ourselves a system integrator that we're providing to, to end markets, to, to direct to consumers. We sell along with the batteries that we're assembling in-house, we also sell uh, chargers and inverter chargers and uh, alternator protection devices and solar panels. So we really are a system provider. At the same time, we have new solid state technology. As Jonas mentioned, we really do have disruptive technology that we're looking to bring, bring to market. And ultimately, we are a developer of manufacturing processes. So uh, we're going to manufacture cells in-house. Even though we are actually procuring cells now and making packs out of them, we're actually going to be manufacturing the cells that we're going to deploy and ultimately, the deployment is going to go to re the residential grid storage levels. We're looking at microgrids ultimately to facilitate a smart grid. doesn't matter how much intermittency you have on the grid in terms of solar and wind and, and renewables. We're going to provide the storage that will make that possible. And that's how we kind of span this the, the entire uh, space of storage in terms of from system provider, technology disruptor, cell manufacturer, and smart grid enabler. 
That's really interesting. And and on the customer side of things, Dragonfly also appears to be seeing a growing share of its sales made up by OEMs rather than direct consumers. What are some of the advantages of those relationships and, and what is driving that change? You know, it, it, it gives us validity, you know, it, <laughs> when, when, when you've got iconic brands like like Airstream and Keystone, basically putting your batteries in at their, at their factories, that, that gave us a lot of credibility. So that's great. That, that's going to help us all around. The relationships with OEMs provide a little bit more visibility in terms of, of our projections. If we're entirely reliant on direct-to-consumer sales, you know, that's been a great market for us historically. But as we grow, it, it really does help to have a little bit more uh, visibility in those sales. And so a huge concern in all the vehicle space, but you know, battery space especially as well, is just supply chain. And you know, the fact that you're moving towards more vertical integration is fascinating. What are your, what are your supply chain, what's your situation right now in, in terms of um, how you're getting products to market? And, and how do you expect this continuing manufacturing work is going to help you uh, improve that? Well, look, currently we're in very good shape uh, in terms of supply chain. You know, historically, um, over the last few years, Obviously, COVID wreaked havoc, did a couple of things. It made it harder for us to get supply while it also drove demand in terms of RVs and batteries. So we kind of learned early on that we needed to, to stock up and get ahead of supply chain issues. And so we really did. We basically stocked up on chips. We bought an entire year's worth of microchips for our uh, the electronics that go into our batteries. Uh, we kept a very large prudent supply of everything that we get from overseas, basically. That whole experience uh, over the last couple of years taught us some lessons that we're implementing now, because as we move forward and start to think about 25, 26, 27, when we're actually manufacturing our own cells, we need to start thinking about raw lithium and raw graphite and that sort of thing. And so, you know, right off the bat, we signed a, uh, an MOU with Ioneer. Um, which is a mining company. They, they're setting up shop down at the Real Light Ridge, which is a couple hundred miles south of us in Reno. We're looking to secure um, a good supply of lithium carbonate, lithium hydroxide. Uh, at the same time, in terms of end of life, we have a, a, another LOI with uh, a local company here, Aquametals, that is developing technology to extract lithium from the type of batteries that we make and process that into lithium hydroxide, which can then be reused. So supply chain is something we is on top of our mind. We're, we want to get ahead of it. Um, it's not an accident that we're located here in Nevada. There's a lot of, uh, of lithium here in the ground uh, in Nevada. And ultimately, we're trying to vertically integrate, not just in the United States, but in the state. And that's ultimately going to uh, bring stability to, to our supply chain. Yeah, it strikes me how much not only are you talking about vertical integration, but even having localized supply on, on both ends there. Jonas, how did that compare? I imagine you were looking at other uh, companies in that space. Just how, how, how did it stand up in terms of the, the competition when we see a lot of these sort of issues out there? Well, they really stood out dramatically from the competition. There were a lot of challenges, as we all know, over the last sort of 12 to 18 months, especially in, in the, the energy storage space. You know, as Dennis mentioned, they were they were forward thinkers. They secured supply. They have long-term relationships sort of globally uh, and navigate this, uh, navigated the, uh, the the timeline very well to the point that I think it really it really stood out for the OEMs. And that's why they've been able to strike these OEM deals in, in, in recent days. And and would add, it's you know probably a key to, to the reason that Thor Industries has made a fifteen million dollar investment as well as, as as part of this transaction, uh, just given the their ability to navigate and be a be a dependent supplier, dependable supplier. 
I want to get into Dragonfly's manufacturing process. As you mentioned, the, the company is somewhat unique in doing all of this work in-house. So what can you tell us about your capacity right now and how are you working to improve the process? So we're, we're talking about two things here because we've got our existing battery pack assembly business, right? And so in that regard, we obviously do it all in-house. We manage the development of every component that goes into those packs. So we've got a lot of quality control. We improve through automation. So there are things that we do in our assembly process that started as pretty manual that we have automated and become more efficient. And that allows us to divert, to, uh, divert resources to the next part of the assembly line. That's our core business right now. In terms of the manufacturing process that we're developing, that has to do with the cells themselves. Again, I want to stress that we are, we are currently buying cells and assembling them into packs in order to drive the technology that will allow us to produce the cells in-house. That cell production technology is a dry powder coating technology that really streamlines the production of the cells and enables us to do something you can't do with conventional cell manufacturing, and that is make a full solid state cell where we re replace the liquid electrolyte with an all solid state composite electrolyte. And that's what makes that manufacturing unique. Got it. And are there any markets or perhaps use cases that you don't plan to focus on or where your particular battery chemistry might not be the most competitive solution? Yeah, that's a good question. We do focus on storage. What that means is the metrics that we really are concerned about are number one, cost of ownership or levelized cost of the storage system and number two, safety. So that's why we really focused on solid state. If you look at some other solid state technology companies, they're applying solid state in order to enable a faster charge and a greater energy density. And these are the important metrics for electric vehicles because you wanna be able to drive far on a charge and you wanna be able to charge it in 15 minutes so that you're competing better with filling your gas tank. And so with our solid state technology, we are not gonna compete well in the EV or propulsion realm because we're not focused on those metrics, but we are gonna compete extremely well on the grid storage application because of the metrics that we're focused on, which will allow us to compete with the cost of burning fossil fuels to make electricity. So now what we're trying to do is combine the cost of ownership of the solar panel plus the battery and make sure that that's competitive with the cost of burning fossil fuels. And that's why we're doing storage and that's why we've applied our solid state technology. Got it. And you just basically got into my next question about the the solid state batteries. They basically seem like they, they may be the next big thing. So what can you tell us about your R&D timeline on developing solid state products? We are currently building a pilot facility. Everything that we've done uh, to date has been smaller scale in terms of coin cells and, you know, split cells, which is basically our ability to apply our manufacturing process to large deposits, but we're making smaller cells out of them. In order to um, actually make larger pouch cells, we have to build out a pilot line. We expect that pilot line to be completed probably early next year. And throughout next year, we're going to be optimizing those cells for longevity, because ultimately what we want is a battery that lasts a long time, a solid state battery that lasts a long time. 
Great. And moving to the SPAC side, really kind of a question for both of you in, in that Dragonfly has been going since 2014 and appears to have been largely self-funded. So what made you decide that now was the right time to go public and, and why with a SPAC rather than IPO? And, and uh, for Jonas, what did you see from a timeline perspective in terms of that inflection point there? Well, first of all, we were very much at an inflection point, uh, both in terms of our technology. As I mentioned, we are ready to deploy a pilot line and we need capital in order to do that and to use the pilot line to, to optimize the technology. And number two, we had gained significant traction in a couple of markets and we need to expand our core business. So we decided to go through this transaction specifically to raise the capital to accomplish these things. Why did we uh, select a SPAC? We were actually on a dual track for some time. We are a profitable company. We, we could have done a traditional IPO. We felt that the SPAC route was the, the more expedient route for us. It made a lot of sense. And ultimately, we found a great SPAC partner that made this possible and evolved the market. Let's say from, from our perspective, SPACs are a lot about timing. And, and so we had launched our SPAC in August. Dennis had mentioned he'd, he'd just been ready and looking through uh, different options about how to go public. So the timing was right. They'd been gearing up for their audits and their financials and, and all of that. And so that, that made a lot of sense, which is often the long pull and the tent in these sort of transactions. The fact that they had great technology, we had experience on our board and otherwise that had, had been involved in the energy storage space. So that was a very, very big helpful element to it. And I think just the relationship, the partnership that Chardon could add on an overall transaction made a lot of sense, uh, sort of pre-deal and post-transaction. And, and so the timing worked and that's how we, that's how it ended up getting off the ground. And I'm also going to interested in another question kind of for both of you in a sense in that as a battery maker over the last couple of years, Dennis, I'm sure you were getting a lot of SPAC calls, but at the same time, you know, for you, Jonas, it's interesting, you know, when you're engaging with a, a company that is going through a, a dual track, is, do you see there being some advantages of that? And just like they're, they're already getting themselves ready. You're not approaching a company out of, out of the blue. I mean, the large advantage is if a company is private and, and really doesn't understand what it means to be public, the SPAC can be helpful, but it's a long process. And so I think what you try to find in a SPAC is a company that is ready to be public, has the right characteristics and understands what that is, and you could be helpful along that process. Um, and in this case, that was exactly sort of the spot that the Dragonfly was in. Um, and, and so I think, you know, that's one of the elements to a SPAC that's helpful that, that, that we, can, we can be providing a good partnership too. And for Dennis, as you were kind of going through this process uh, on, on the dual track, you know, what were some of the things that stood out to you about Chardon Next, Next Tech 2's team? And what do you see as being sort of the, the, the advantages they bring uh, both now and moving forward? Just in general, I think there are certain things that you can do in a SPAC that you, you, you can't do in a traditional IPO. We're a pretty unique company because we have technology that will be deployed in the future. At the same time, we have a core business. And I think Chardin understood that very well, you know, and we crafted a deal that rewarded us for our current business while at the same time allowing for an earnout to provide us for credit for what will materialize based on the, the R&D. So they've been a great partner in that regard. And in general, as I mentioned, the market has been tricky. And I think it takes a good partnership to sort of be creative and, and weather the storm. And to be where we are right now, I'm, I'm really proud of us. I'm proud of them. I'm proud of this partnership. And, and we're, we're really excited about where we are. Great. And I did want to ask you about that, that kind of the market issue there, Jonah, just in that you've mentioned the snapshot in which you've been searching. And over that time, you know, we've seen price performance across the battery and EV space shift quite a bit. And so just what are some of the things that you focused on in, in, in evaluating Dragonfly and, uh, and sizing it up to the rest of the field? 
So I think we, we did a very long sort of due diligence process, um, really from a technology perspective, from a financial perspective. Um, obviously, we, we were through the back half of last year and the early part of this year, spent a lot of time interacting with investors and building out the key elements of, of the transaction. And so we feel from that perspective, we have an all-encompassing sort of overview of, of the company. I think in these sort of markets, you know, we had a healthy discussion about what the right pricing could be, and, and that was fine-tuned over the course of a couple of months because they are volatile markets. I think we ended up with, with a really fair transaction in the sense that investors are getting in at a compelling entry point, and there's a great earnout structure, which Dennis mentioned, which really can, uh, in this case, we're looking at financial metrics that are that are significant, going from 78 million in revenue to 250 million in revenue by the end of next year, 2023, with 35 million in operating income, and so that's a real financial metric to hit an earnout, and then the others are 22 and a half and 32 and a half dollars per share, once again driving great IRRs for shareholders. And so that was, I think, a fair balance that, that we saw through the, through the SPAC transaction. And then ultimately, it's about putting the, the pieces together. We were innovative there as well. We have a great lender that, that's committing $75 million to the transaction, four-year term uh, note. Um, we're, the, the sponsor's committing $5 million. We're able to put in a $15 million strategic investment from Thor, um, which is part of a sort of a longer-term relationship, exclusive relationship with Dragonfly. And so you add those elements together, those take time, and that's why SPACs work in these sort of choppy markets. And so, you know, pulling that all together, plus where Shard is providing an equity facility post-transaction in case it's needed, that the company's request if they'd like to draw down capital, there's another $150 million available to it. And so if you kind of put all these components together, those would be difficult to do anything other than a SPAC. So I really think that that was a great fit between where the company was, the trajectory it's going to, its need for capital, and, and how the SPAC flexibility can help problem solve and come up with a great transaction. And what is the advantage of being publicly listed that you're most looking forward to taking advantage of? I think being publicly listed gives us a lot of credibility among OEMs. You know, I think it's important to have a company that is transparent. I think it's already begun to to pay dividends as we went into this uh, merger agreement. Our relationships with the OEMs that we had has, has expanded, and I think that's not a coincidence. Great. Well, you mentioned that there's a million different ways in which this is a unique deal. Although we've seen a lot of deals in this space, there's just a lot of interesting things going on with Dragonfly. One that you guys didn't mention that I just have to throw out there because it is one of those marks of, of uniqueness that I think people don't expect to see in a, in a company of this space and that going into the first quarter of this year, you had 17 straight quarters of profitability, which is definitely not what I think some people are used to seeing with, with battery makers. It's going to be fascinating to continue to watch this deal as you guys move forward. But before I, I let you guys go, um, do you have any update in terms of what you're looking at in terms of the timeline for the deal? So just from an update on transaction, um, we are messaging second half 2020. Okay, great. Well, we'll be looking for that. And thanks so much for being on. Thank you. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you.